Today I am continuing to interview David Barton. Uh, And I tell you, what a blessing David has been. And as he's been just sharing the historical facts about our nation and about how that God was so involved in everything. I tell you, it's really blessed me and it's been encouraging. And David, some of the things that we've been talking about um, are how that we need to inform people about these historical mm-hmm. facts and political facts. But, you know, there, there's a balance here. And, and at the end of yesterday's program, I just mentioned this, that we need to get involved and we need to start re-educating people and standing up for the truth. But at the same time, the church isn't doing its yeah. job reaching people. And I, was it uh, John Adams that said that, uh, I, I'll miss the quote up, you can do it, but it's about the Constitution or something is totally inadequate for anybody. Yeah, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. He said it's wholly inadequate for the government. And if we ever cease to be moral, then we will be destroyed Mm -hmm. because of the freedom. So we've got to, first of all, win this battle for people's hearts. And I think that the church has not been doing our part on that. I I would agree. And I'm going to jump right into deep waters here. And it, it ticks some people off, and that's fine. Um, one of the problems the church has done in the last 50 years is we've let the role define our. We've let the world define our role. Romans 12:1 and 2 says, "Be not conformed to the world, mm-hmm. be transformed." I love that verse in the Phillips translation. Phillips translation says, "Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold." Mm-hmm. And what's happened is we've let secular people tell the church what it can and can't talk about, what arenas it can and can't be involved with, where it can and can't put its faith. We've let people who don't like us tell us what we can do with our faith. And the problem is, as a result, we have transformed the Great Commission. Matthew 18, uh, very clear, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples. And we have made that an evangelism mandate. And that's not what he said. He said, you teach them everything I have taught you. It's a discipleship mandate. And so what we've done, we're so concerned about getting people saved, we don't get them discipled. Uh, One of the difficulties with that, and, and by the way, if we're going to teach people everything Jesus said... I will point out that he talks about the minimum wage in Matthew chapter 20. He talks about what we call the capital gains tax in Luke 19 and Matthew 25. Now, the minimum, would you explain this a little bit more? Are you talking about every man got a penny? Uh, he says, the, the, the employer says, it's not my money, mine to do with as I please. Yeah. And if you don't like my wages, you go to some other vineyard. And now the government says, no, 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 here's how much you'll pay these guys. No, no, no. Jesus says, it's my money, I can do it as I please. And he tells them, the, the employee, if you don't like that, you can go to the... And so that right, that's free market system. You can go elsewhere. You can, Matthew 25 you know, tells it's, us... It's just amazing to me, some of these things that you're bringing out, because I've read those verses, and yet I don't always apply them in a political sense. Mm-hmm. And I think part of this is that, you know, the, the pilgrims, the founding fathers, they were living in a hostile That's environment, right. and so they took the word and applied it. We have grown up with a freedom, and we just haven't seen the need for this. And I think because of that, a lot of us are ignorant about these things. And, you know, one of the things I have learned to do in recent years is I, I try to read the Bible as though I've never read it before, and I try to read it as though I don't know what circumstances it's talking about. I'll, I'll give you an example. The Bible does support capital punishment. It starts in Genesis 9, goes all the way through Romans 13, no question about it. There was a famous trial back in 2005 of Scott Peterson, who was accused of murdering his wife, Lacey, and their unborn son, Connor. As a result of that, they passed what's now called the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which says if you kill a pregnant woman, you've killed two lives. And so that was Scott Peterson, who was convicted of of killing uh, the wife, Lacey, and the child, Connor. Mm -hmm. That's a federal law. State, states have that law. 
Um, and that's because th- there's two things involved with what I'm about to tell you here. One is that Scott Peterson went through that trial. I watched it, thought he was guilty. They gave, the jury gave him the death penalty. That's a place death penalty. Then I had a problem. I read Deuteronomy 17.6. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, No one shall be put to death unless, unless on the witness of two or three eyewitnesses, unless on the testimony of two or three eyewitnesses. There was not a single eyewitness to what Scott did. All the circumstantial evidence there. And by the way, I believe from the Bible that DNA is an eyewitness because back at Cain and Abel, God says, hey, Abel's blood cries mm-hmm. to me from the ground. That is a witness. There was not DNA evidence. In, now, I think he's guilty, so maybe his penalty should have been life imprisonment, but he got the death penalty. And the Bible says death penalty, but only if you have eyewitnesses to it. So the Fort Hood shooting, no difficulty with that. There were eyewitnesses everywhere. Scott Peterson well, was see, not. This is a great application. I agree with your conclusions, but I'm not sure that I would have used see, Scripture me too. Me too. in a way. And, it's just amazing. I, I, I'm capital, and here's another one for you. The unborn child... Connor died. That's why we have that law. We believe that life begins at conception. Why do we believe that? Because of Jeremiah 1.5. Mm-hmm. No, I can't. Because God says, before you were conceived, I knew you. Now, wait a minute. If life begins at conception, how does God say, before you were conceived, I knew Life must begin before conception? What do I do with this? And so now I'm into IVF kind of stuff because where you have the IVF clinics with the, the sperm separated from the egg and the in vitro fertilization, that's before conception. And now that's the debate we're having over what do we do? Do we destroy those unfertilized eggs or even the fertilized? And so you're going, wow. I just haven't ever thought about Scripture in those lines. See, me too. And, and that's why I try to go through the Scripture and read it as though I've never read it before and read it without thinking about how I normally would read it and see what is the literal application of that, and go, wow. You know, I would have to change my jury. I, I'm still for the death penalty. It doesn't change. Bible is too. Mm-hmm. But the Bible says death penalty with eyewitnesses. And as we talked about last week, that's one of the reasons they stopped the witch trials in Massachusetts, was the preachers came forward and said, where are the eyewitnesses? You're, you're putting these 27 people dead. Where you know, that's, that's cool stuff. So uh, that kind of application, if we're going to teach people everything that Jesus taught us, we've got tax stuff, we've got economic stuff. He teaches the inviability, the employer-employee contract in Matthew 20, where he says, if you don't like my contract, go to another vineyard, get a contract. So I get to negotiate my contracts between vineyards, whoever I want. And if I can get a penny and a half a day from this guy that I can't, I'll do that. You know, in a sense, the church has preached separation of church and state. The church has done it to itself. That's right separation of church and state, but we have taught people that you have a spiritual life and that the Bible applies to it, but in a secular realm, that the government See, here's my challenge. If I believe the Bible literally, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, says that God's inspired word is to prepare us for, it says, quote, every work, to prepare the man of God for every good work. So if every means every, then every means every. And every means every, which means the Word of God applies to everything, which means there's nothing secular. Mm -hmm. So the mentality that says, and and the way I try to explain this is, imagine you're at the the judgment, final judgment in Revelation. We know that everybody comes before the judgment throne. We know there's the Lamb's Book of Life. There's also the Book of Deeds, whereby rewards and punishments are given out. We know Jesus says in Matthew 12, every word you've spoken, you'll be judged for. We know in 1 Corinthians 4 that every thought we had to be judged for. We know in, in Hebrews 4, every deed we've done. So it's all written down. And so if you can imagine being a fly on the wall and watching somebody come and the books are open and everything, and then the Lamb's Book of Life and rewards, and, you watch, and then here comes a guy and God says, oh, time out. That guy's a politician. My word doesn't apply to him. He's off the hook. Bring in the next one. You know, somehow we think 
that there are certain arenas where God's word does not apply. I guarantee you God thinks his word applies to every aspect of life. And so the church is promoting the notion that some things are secular. and some, Kids, you want to do something good for God? Be a pastor, be a missionary, but don't get in that secular stuff. Stay out of law and government and politics and education and science. Stay... No, God knows more you know, about science than any scientist This is one of the things we're doing in our Bible college. We have a third-year program now, and we're specifically have, we're training up people to be business leaders. That's right. And things like that. That's right. Because there's many ways of serving God. A minister, I praise God for being a minister. It's a wonderful calling. But, man, we need people in the workplace That's right. out there, politicians, business people, and all that. Well, I'm an ordained minister as well. But, you know, when you and I went through the Capitol, one of the things that we saw was how many of those statues in there we would never call ministers because it was the President of the United States? Yeah, but he was a minister of the gospel. He's a general. Yeah, but he's a minister of the gospel. He's an educator. Yeah, but he's a minister of the gospel. And see, this is where the church is backed off, is we used to be involved in every aspect of life, and now we have reduced the Great Commission to nothing more than an evangelism mandate. And, and as a result... bring them within our four walls before we stand up for anything. And, and you know, all right, I'm a cowboy, and I, I'm sorry, but I've got a little problem here. I believe in the laws of nature, and we have it in Romans 1, we have it in Psalms 19. We're the sheep, he's the shepherd, we have shepherds over the sheep. In the, I'm sorry, but it's the sheep that reproduce sheep, it's not the shepherds that reproduce. If Amen. shepherds reproduce in sheep, there's something strange going on in the flock. Amen. And if I have to go to church 52 weeks a year to hear a salvation message, that's supposed to be the flock in there. That the shepherd, the flock's supposed to go outside and reproduce. We're supposed to go bring others to Christ. We go to church for the work of the ministry to be equipped, to be prepared, to be ready to go take the world over on Monday morning. And we have so reduced the gospel into just such a narrow mold that we don't... I want to read, in the Second Great Awakening, the, the great preacher then was a guy named Charles Finney. And Charles Finney is really the guy that so much of modern church traditions based on. There weren't altar calls till Charles Finney. And, and the notion that you could come to Christ and, and receive him, that was, that was a different notion then. So what we do with church today, a lot comes from the Second Great Awakening. But he had a series of books that were called Revival Lectures. He said, you know, you can take biblical principles and apply them in such a way as to create a revival. You don't have to wait for revivals. There are biblical principles that will create revivals. And so he had systematic lectures on revival. I want to read you part of, of what he said. I'll just okay. pull it up here. He's talking to the preachers in his day. He said, Brethren, our, pre our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. He said, If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a large degree. I think there's immorality, but I don't uh, think the church is willing to say we're responsible no, for it. No, but man, I think we are. We are. Yeah. See, we haven't been talking about... You, all right, I, I'm going to get real personal here for a minute. Uh, I work with a group that we call between 500 and 600 churches every day, every day. And we're looking to see what their biblical beliefs are. And so as we call them, we'll ask six or seven questions. Do you believe the Bible is God's Word? Do you, do you believe the Bible talks about marriage? Do you believe the Bible talks about abortion? You know, we ask six or seven questions. And what we find is only one out of ten churches believe the Bible addresses issues like marriage and abortion. You're kidding. That's all. One out of ten. Nine out of ten don't Are believe it. Are you calling all types of churches? Every Christian church. Every, every church that claims to be Christian. That's we say, terrible. do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe that God gets involved in affairs today? It's just simple questions. Simple. So then, of that 10%, we then survey those pastors. George Barna goes in and surveys those pastors. We found that of those pastors who believe that the Bible speaks to things like marriage and things like abortion, 
that only one out of three of those pastors who believe that even mention that from the pulpit. Now, I've seen the Barna survey. I get those, and I've seen those exact stats. So we're talking so about... So you're involved with that? You're the mm -hmm. one that kind of gives... Barna well, I, I'm involved with the group that's doing that. We, we work together on things. And, and so what we're talking about is one... No, one out... Let me back up say percentage-wise. Three percent of American pastors talk about abortion and marriage from the pulpit. So if there's immorality in the land, the fault's ours in a large degree. Well, did you know last year, a year ago this time, I did a series I call Christian Philosophy, and I made application to homosexuality, yes. abortion, yes. and uh, evolution versus creationism. And did you know that uh, our stats since I went on television in 2000 have just been going up Absolutely. like this? Absolutely. And when I taught on abortion and evolution, and homosexuality, they started down. And people who've been partnered with right. me for 15 years got mad because you have no business talking about an that, opinion that's about right. these secular things. If God talks about it, why aren't we talking about it? And how many verses do I need to give you from the Bible on abortion? And how many would you like on homosexuality? And see, I hear people say, you shouldn't be getting into political affairs. Not political. I, this is the Bible. Mm -hmm. the, the government's getting into, into biblical right. affairs. It's not us getting into political affairs. And yet I've been on the receiving end of this uh, criticism or this fear that Christians, you shouldn't be in this arena. Yeah. You ought to stay over here in just the church. And that's wrong, and that's the reason it's we're a good in the thing that, we're that in. those people in the Bible didn't believe that. That's right. Because God's ministers got involved in everything. I mean, Jesus called out mm -hmm. Herod, called him old fox. And Jesus could not stand in an American pulpit today and said what he said in the New Testament, where he called out the, the civil leaders like he did, whitewashed sepulchre. So he, Finney says, if immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a large degree. He continues. He says, if there's a decay of conscience. I think conscience is under attack right now, whether it's health care law, whether it's homosexual marriage, whether it's photographers who don't want to... He says, if there's a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. I don't think the church would step up and say, hey, we're losing conscience, it's our fault. He says, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit's responsible for it. I agree. Now, I don't think the pulpit is saying, I, I can't help it what happens on MSNBC or CBN or HBO or... No. The if we had responsible. a red-hot revival and people were turned on to God, I guarantee you the press would be affected by it because people would quit listening to them, buying their publications. See, if, if people had a biblical worldview, we wouldn't buy secular thinking mm -hmm. stuff. And that's why the longest telegram ever delivered in America back in oh, the early 1900s, longest, it's a fun story. Um, the, the Revised Standard Version of the Bible came out in, what, 1889. Then they did the, the edition of it, the, the new edition of the Revised. And it came out in the early 1900s. And the Chicago Tribune sent a reporter. Now, it was done in England. Chicago Tribune sent a reporter to Harbor in New York to meet the ship coming in with the first copy of the new Revised Standard Version because they want to see what's in it. So he got the copy. He completely typed out the New Testament, sent it back in one telegraph, they printed that on the front page of the Chicago Tribune because their readers wanted to know what the new version of the Bible oh, said. Man. You know, even, even in Denver, you look after World War II, Denver, the newspapers here, if you miss church on Sunday, not to worry because we had, we had reporters in major churches across the city on Sunday and we summarized the sermons. And, and that's Denver. And after World War II, this is going on. And, you know, so, so he says that the public press lacks moral discrimination, pulpit's responsible for it. He said if the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit's responsible for it. He said if the world loses its interest in religion, the pulpit's responsible for it. He just keeps going through all. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit's responsible for it. 
If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is I mean, he just keeps going. And this is the belief we used to that. have in America. I believe that. Now, and, and, you know, this is, this is where the church has fallen down. And, and let me just give you one specific example of this. We no longer educate our kids. We give our kids to the Philistines and to the Babylonians to educate. Now, you get the Bible school here. I had a blast being with those, those kids over the last several days. And they're thinking right. and They're being trained to think right. But church didn't train them to think right. Church gave them over to the Philistines and the Babylonians to train. And, I and tell that's a people problem. all of the time that if the church was doing its job and doing discipleship, there would be no need for a Caris Bible College. That's right. The church is supposed to do what I'm doing through this Bible college, and they aren't doing it. So There would be is, no need for wall builders. We wouldn't need to be right. involved. I, I hope to put ourselves out of business because the church I, does what it's supposed to do. That's what I've told people. Yep. Now, we've been talking about the pilgrims. One thing we didn't mention about the pilgrims was that they're the ones who passed the very first public school law in America. They came out of that period two Christianity, which was high illiteracy. We talked last week about the three periods of Christianity. Period two Christianity, high illiteracy. They looked at what happened, and they said, you know, so much of the atrocities that went on, what happened with the slaughter of Jews, what happened with the Inquisition, what happened was because people didn't know the Bible. The civil leader said, you want to make Jesus happy? Kill a Jew, because Jews killed him. And so we go do that. They said, if we could have read the Bible for ourselves, we never would have put up with that stuff. We've got to know the Bible. So it resulted in a 1647 law. This is the law book that they passed. The, this is the first public school law in America. It's under the section titled Schools, right here. I want to read this, this law, by the way, public school law from the pilgrims out of this Bible, uh, Proverbs 1-7, Proverbs 22-6, etc. Public school law, it's called the Old Deluder Satan Law. That is the name of the first public school. Why did they call it that? They said it being the one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the Scriptures as he has in former times. And they go through and say, look, Satan's number one purpose is to keep us from knowing God's Word. We ain't putting up with that in our colony. You're going to know God's Word. And so it says when you get 50 people in a community, you have to get a teacher to teach. When you get 100 people in a community, you have to build a school because we're going to know God's Word. In 1690, in the same colony... They came out and said, we had a law. They said, you're supposed to know how to read and supposed to know how to read the Bible. And we've examined, and there's a lot of illiterate people among us. And they said, the problem with that is, that means that we in the legislature might pass a law that would violate God's Word, and you, the people, would never stop us because you don't know how to read, therefore you can't read God's Word, which means we might get the whole colony in trouble with God because you don't know the Bible. That was the illiteracy law. Wow. You know, so that's what the church is Amazing. supposed to be teaching. And if you look at how well we believe this, if you get to 1860 in America, in 1860 there were 246 colleges and universities in America. 246 colleges and universities, 91% of those colleges and universities had a minister of the gospel as the president of the university. I'll bet you not 1%. I'll bet you most Christian colleges today don't have a minister of the gospel yeah. as president of the university. And that was state universities, that was secular universities. 91% had a minister of the gospel running the university. I wonder how the universities thought back then. Pretty biblical in a lot of ways. And by the time you get to 1884, there were 370 colleges. Only 17% of those colleges were not affiliated with some denomination, and many of them were interdenominational colleges. So again, you have nearly 90% of the colleges being Christian colleges, and that's in 1884. Well, nearly all of our Ivy League colleges started out mm -hmm. as Christian universities, didn't they? But then, Chris, see, what happened to Christians was in the period from about, about 1910 to about 1930, we specifically in the church started seeing kids 
You want to do something good for God? Be a pastor, be a missionary, but stay out of education, stay out of... Say. We pulled our stuff, and you watch. It is Yale that turned in a secular direction in that, that period in the early 1900s. So did Harvard, so did Dartmouth, so did Princeton, so did William Murray. Christian. They were all Christian, but Christians pulled out, and we can't understand why they aren't Christian anymore. Do you know, I was in a discussion one time with a group of pastors around the table, and they were talking about how bad the secular education system was, and everybody was talking except this one pastor. And finally, I said, what's your opinion? And he says, you're having the wrong debate. He said, it shouldn't be a question of, you know, about how should we change the secular education thing. It says, we shouldn't even have secular yeah, education. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. And he went back to the exact same things you did, that the church is the one that started education. They used the Bible that's as right. a textbook. Their primers and stuff were all about... That's why we were the most educated nation in the world. We are the most literate yeah. nation in the world. We had the highest achievements. We have more patents, everything. But the church got out of it, and now we're not... And as we forsake the Bible that's and right. moral principles, we have gone down, down, down. That's to where right. There's many nations ahead of the United States now in education. Absolutely. And it's all because we have forsaken these godly that's right. things. So the reason we started on all of this is to talk about Thanksgiving. And, and you quoted some of these, uh, Washington and others, that it is the duty of a nation to be thankful and to recognize God mm -hmm. and stuff. And so we need to gain back our nation. We could start with this um, observance of thanksgiving, that, man, this isn't something we ought to give over to the secular world. It isn't something that's a harvest festival. It is a godly holiday where we boldly proclaim our thanksgiving right. to God for all the good stuff that He's done. That's right. But, but let me just... Read this from George Washington. Um, this was November of 1789, and George Washington said, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of God. And he goes on and talks about uh, imploring the grateful, uh, being grateful for his benefits, humbly implore his um, protection and forever. But he says it's the duty. And that's what we've been trying to elevate, that this is not a just a day off of work. This is a godly thing, and not only as individuals, but as a nation. We need to acknowledge God as the source of everything. He's the one who gave us our freedoms, and we've been trying to emphasize that. Let me read this one also from Thomas Jefferson, because again, so many people say Thomas Jefferson was a deist or totally secular and really anti-God. But here's what he said. He said, I appoint a day of public thanksgiving to Almighty God to ask Him that He would pour out His Holy Spirit on all ministers of the gospel, that He would spread the light of Christian knowledge through, through uh, the remotest corner of the earth and that He would establish these United States upon the basis of religion and virtue. And so this is our history Contrary to what some people are trying to portray, this is a godly day to just as a nation pause and thank God. And I am so glad to have David Barton, who I believe is an authority and a leader in bringing America back to its Christian godly roots. And so talking with today's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. What do you have to say about well, Thanksgiving first from off, a historical perspective? If you haven't had your Thanksgiving meal yet, when you do, make sure and make God a big part of what you do. I mean, the, if you're in America, there's football games all day long. That's great. But do not forget God. This is not about, as you said, a day off from work. This is not just a holiday. 
This is a time to remember God, and it's really important that we do. Go online and at our website, wallbuilders.com. We've got tons of old Thanksgiving proclamations. Just print one off and sit at the dinner table and read a Thanksgiving proclamation from some former president or some founding father. The one you just read from Thomas Jefferson is a great one to read from 1779. Take the time to honor God, acknowledge God. Also take a little bit of time used to be at dinner tables that you would have teachings at dinner tables. And that's particularly what Jews do. That's, that's what their Shabbat meal is. It's a teaching time mm-hmm. for the family. Take a little time and say, hey, here's who the pilgrims were. Here's what they did. Here's what they gave us. Here's the legacy we have that we enjoy from these guys. They're the guys who gave us the, the Thanksgiving festival day, but they gave us our education system. They gave us our government system. They gave us written documents. They gave us great relationships with the Native Americans. When we got away from the Bible, we lost that. You know, just great stuff. So, so go back and do a little history as well. But we're celebrating this on the fourth Thursday in November. Why? Why not tomorrow, Friday? Why not yesterday, Wednesday? Why not a week ago or three weeks from now? And it's an interesting little history of how it came to be because it was not made, it was not until federal law passed that in 1941, right before World War II, that we set aside the fourth Thursday. Now, we had done Thanksgivings, and we looked back in the last couple of weeks, we looked at a bunch of proclamations from founding fathers. And just to summarize, we had a number of Thanksgiving, and it was observed occasionally, but wasn't it Lincoln that made it the first national holiday? Yeah. What, what happened was your New England states really observed Thanksgiving very well. The southern states did not do so until they got the Continental Congress, and the Continental Congress did. But then after we go back to 13 states, it got to be sporadic. And if you, had a, if you had a president of the United States from a southern state, you didn't get much in the way of Thanksgiving proclamations. If you had a president of the United States from a northern state, you got Thanksgiving proclamations. Yeah, this is amazing because now I would say that it's the South yeah, who is the Bible born, Belt. The Bible Belt. Yeah, yeah. And, but it was opposite of that prior to the Civil War. But see, that's because we knew our history. Back then, you get a person like Calvin Coolidge out of the New England area. You you ought to see the, the history lessons Calvin Coolidge gave on the pilgrims. If you were from that New England area, you knew the pilgrims. I, I have spoken several times recently at churches in Massachusetts, and when I do, I just speak to them only on Massachusetts founding fathers, Massachusetts, and they don't have a clue. They live in Massachusetts. They don't know who the signers of the Declaration are or Constitution of Massachusetts. They didn't know how many theologians were involved in, in writing the Massachusetts Constitution. Just none of that. And so it's really gone opposite. Now in the South, they are more Bible Belt. Um, they know a little more about George Washington and God in history than the North does. North doesn't know its own history. But it was that the presidents, if you came out of the North, you'd, you're probably going to have Thanksgiving. How that you know, it changed when the church got out of education, particularly in the 1900 to 1920 range, that's where it changed. And if you look at, I mean, you take someone like like Roosevelt, FDR, we consider him to be a liberal president, and he was in some areas, but he was not religiously. I mean, he was he was very conservative religiously. And so Franklin Delano Roosevelt, what is, uh, it's amazing. Let me just jump ahead with him for a minute. Franklin Roosevelt has a liberal social view, not an immoral social view. He's not for abortion. He's not for homosexuality. I mean, liberal in the sense the government should do more. Mm-hmm. So he has that view. But when he was sworn into office, what he did was every year thereafter on his inauguration day, he went to church and had a special service to renew his vow to God because he believed that his inauguration was a vow between him and God. And so he wanted to go back before God. As he tried to keep us out of World War I as it's developing, we get to 
Pearl Harbor. And, and by the way, before we got to Pearl Harbor, he said, what's going on over in Europe is a conflict between Christianity and anti-Christianity. He said the forces of Nazism are the forces of anti-Christianity. When we got into the war in, in, in 1941 after Pearl Harbor, he went on air and said, this is an attack against Christianity. We will not tolerate that. He made it very clear that World War II was a Christian versus anti-Christian position. There's no way a president would say that today. No, no way. And I guarantee you what's happening with the radical Islamist is anti-Christian. It's anti-Christian. You say that. I'll receive criticism because we even mentioned it on well, the program. Tell me what happened with Coptic Christians from Muslim Brotherhood That's took right. over Egypt. Tell they me what happened. The Coptic That's right. And tell me what happened with Muslim Brotherhood in Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan, everywhere Muslim Brotherhood has been. Tell me what's happened to Christians. And as a matter of fact, in Syria, uh, we've seen recently the headlines that that the uh, uh, the rebels in Syria are telling Christians to convert or be beheaded. Mm -hmm. You know, but our media doesn't put that out. We we don't. But nonetheless, that's that's the belief of our presidents. And so, if you had a New England president, you were coming in with a pretty strong Christian worldview. Now we may debate about political things or taxation or else, but you're not going to debate the Christian worldview of those guys coming in. And you know, Teddy Roosevelt out of New York gave a sermon every year on Christmas. That was the president giving a sermon. And you know, the critics of what you're saying would cite that FDR had extramarital affairs mm -hmm. and stuff, and so they had. So did David. Yes. And that doesn't condone anything. Well, that's a very good answer because, see, they would use his failures to sit there and say, see, he wasn't, didn't have a moral view. But you know what? He may not have had a moral view, but he knew that, that the country needed God. And I'll, I'll tell you, under, under FDR, I have a collection of these 100,000 documents we have before 1812. I've got scores from more recent years. And I have a collection of artwork from the U.S. government. That artwork in the U.S. government is the war bond posters that we use to raise money. Because in financing the war, we didn't just go to the Treasury and get money. We went to the people we of the United States. That we, yeah, strange thing. We didn't just print money. <laughs> I wonder why not. What a great idea. We went to the people of the United States. And, you know, one of the most popular World War II posters in raising money was it showed a Nazi arm, the Nazi swastika, the black, the black sleeve, Grabbing, grabbing a German dagger, the long dagger they used, and it has driven it through the Bible. And so a Nazi arm with a knife through the Bible, and the bottom of the poster says, this is our enemy, printed by the U.S. government, war bonds. And wow. so that was the message we conveyed. And we have a number of war posters that quote Bible verses. We have war posters showing the birth of Jesus, the nativity, that we want peace in the world, and that comes through Christ. This is what we had in, in World War II. Now, this is not necessarily Thanksgiving, but this is to say this is the tone of the country. We've gone, we've gone far hardcore secular left in the last yeah. 20 to 30 years. But you go back, and so we had this tradition in New England of having Thanksgiving and following the pilgrims. The South didn't do it. The Continental Congress did. Then the presidents were sporadic. And about 1830, 1840, this lady came up, um, Sarah Josepha Hale was her name, and God raised her up, and she started going to visit every president of the United States for 20 years, said, we've got to have a national day of Thanksgiving. And some presidents would, some wouldn't. And she got Lincoln, and Lincoln mm -hmm. said, you're right.
And that's where that 1863 proclamation came from with Sarah Josepha Hale. And she was the editor of Goldie's Lady Magazine, which was a big popular ladies magazine back then, like a good housekeeping or McCall's magazine. Mm -hmm. And so she got the president to do it, and she stayed on after it. And so you, you see that after Lincoln, we had annual days of Thanksgiving, but they weren't always at the same time. Um, I'll, I'll just try to go through some real quick here. I'm not going to pull this one out. It's kind of hard to see, but this is the Thanksgiving by President Ulysses S. Grant. You know, came after Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. uh, you have this one. Uh, this is by President Chester A. Arthur. This is the day of Thanksgiving that he did. Uh, there, here's the day of Thanksgiving. And Chester Arthur was what year? Uh, this, this one, it, he signs it in the year of our Lord, 1881. So it's in the year of our Lord, 1881. That's uh, President uh, Chester Arthur. Here's one by President William McKinley, and this is done in the year of our Lord, 1,900, uh, so 1,900. This is President McKinley. This is the day of th this is the actual proclamation. Here is one by President William Howard Taft. Uh, this one is done in 1909, uh, 1907. Excuse me. Here is a president proclamation Thanksgiving by President Woodrow Wilson. Um, so this is Wilson. This is by Calvin Coolidge. That's now, his, all of these mention God. All too. of these mention God. But didn't you say that some of the later ones uh, of our current administration is even omitted God out yeah, of the proclamation? What happens, and these go all the way, here's Reagan and here's other presidents. Um, the, one, the, president, the, the Thanksgiving message given for the last several years out of the White House does not even mention God in Thanksgiving anymore. Sometimes in the written proclamation they will mention God. But when the president gives a Thanksgiving message that this is Thanksgiving and this is the day we give thanks, he does not mention God Who at all. Who do you give thanks to if you don't mention God? Well, if you're in public school, you give thanks to the Indians because I have a number of textbooks that say Thanksgiving is when the pilgrims said thank you to the Indians for teaching us how to live really? in the land. Mm -hmm. And that, according to the documents you've shown, that is absolutely a lie. Well, it's part of the truth because the pilgrims did say thank you for teaching us to live in the land. You're a gift from God to us. So the pilgrims called Squanto, they said he is God's gift. He is God's chosen instrument for our good, for our benefit. So you, you did have them saying, and you should, you should be appreciative when people help you. Well, yeah, but that's like, you know, but that's, that's like a car gets me someplace. I just don't thank the car. That's exactly but it's the right. The people who made the car that's right. and make that's all it. these things. And work. that's the difference. So what, what they do is they ignore the fact that there were religious services involved with the pilgrims. They ignore the whole lifestyle of the pilgrims built around God, built around His Word. They ignore all of that to say, oh, it's a day to thank the Indians. That's one of 30 things that happened on that day. You know, give, give the whole picture. And, and so we're very bad at Wikipedia. Uh, I don't know about this year, I haven't checked this year, but up through last year, Wikipedia never even mentioned God with Thanksgiving. And how you can cover the history of Thanksgiving and not mention so God. So what do they say? Well, it's a time to be thankful for our relationships with other people. It's a time when we stop and acknowledge the benefits that we have. Where those benefits come from? Well, you we know, gave them to sadly, ourselves. there's probably people watching this program right now that that's what Thanksgiving is to them. A yeah. day to just thank it's God it's for their family, family day. and that's they right. get together. Well, that they don't thank God for the family. It's a day to get together with family. They don't well, remember to thank true. God. You know, it's so secular that this is a, a day of family. It's a day off work. It's a day when I can watch football games and enjoy being whatever I am. But man, if you are thanking just whatever for all of these blessings instead of thanking God, you're missing the heart of everything. You're, you're missing the heart of everything. And, and so it, it was Sarah Joseph Hale who started saying, hey, as a nation, we need to do this and we need to remind the people. And so you have Lincoln doing that and all these presidents. 
and then FDR. And, and what happened was all these proclamations I showed you, they weren't always on Thursday, and they weren't always in November. Sometimes Thanksgiving was in October, sometimes it was in December. And it was FDR who focused it back and said, okay, fourth Thursday of, of November. And then Congress under FDR passed a federal law that said, for, so we're here today on this fourth Thursday in, in November. It's a process that's been coming for almost 400 years, but it was 1941 that said this day, but it's because we've been doing Thanksgiving all the way along. And, and going back to even what you just read out of the track to begin, George Washington said, we do this because it's our duty as a nation. Yeah. To, this is not just a private family get-together. It's our nation remembering to thank God. Man, that's awesome. I just pray that the people watching this program realize the points that we're trying to get across is that this isn't just an individual thing. It's not just to enjoy family and stuff like that. But we have a duty as a nation to stand up and recognize God as the source yeah. of all of these things. And David, this is what we've been trying to portray here for two weeks is that, that America was founded on these godly principles. This isn't just a uh, fluke that it happened. It took the providence of God. You would know this much better than I do, but the little bit that I've studied on history, it's a miracle that this nation survived because even after we won the revolution, there was so much infighting, there was mm -hmm. so much poverty and the lack of federal government and stuff like this. This nation could have fallen apart many times. It's God that caused this nation to be. It's God that caused this nation to be, and it was also our biblical core values. Because even the non-religious among us still had biblical values. That's right. And a great example of that is uh, Benjamin Franklin. When He's probably one of the least religious. He is one of the least religious. And what's really interesting is, is Franklin, and we can look at his public record, but I want to point to something he did. Because there's a man he helped bring to America in 1772, a guy named Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine came to America in 1772. Franklin got him set up in the printing business with Robert Aiken in Philadelphia. Um, they became good friends with Declaration signer Benjamin Rush, also a good friend of Franklin, a very evangelical guy. Benjamin Rush signed the Declaration, but he started the Sunday School Movement, the First Bible Society, mm -hmm. etc. And so Thomas Paine comes to notoriety in 1776 by writing a pamphlet now called Common Sense, which kind of launched the American Revolution. So he does some other writing, and across the years, people really appreciated all he did. But what he did in about 1790... He said, you know, I've never talked to anybody about my religious beliefs, but I think Christianity is terrible. I think the Bible is That's Thomas bad. Payne. Thomas Paine saying this. I think the Bible is bad. And so he started preparing to write what became the Age of Reason. And before he printed it, he took his manuscript. He sent it to his friend, Ben Franklin. Remember our least religious founding father? Mm -hmm. He said, Ben, here's what I intend to do. What do you think? And Franklin wrote him back and said, well... As to my opinion, he said, I would advise you not to attempt unchaining the tiger, but to burn this piece before it is seen by any other person. He mm -hmm. said, you argue that men are wicked with religion. He said, if men are wicked with religion, what would they be if without religion? He said, think of all the young people that need religion to restrain their vices, to encourage their virtues. And he talked about what, what, country, what the country would be like without people being religiously grounded. And he's, he, he's not, I would not call Franklin a Christian. Um, but Franklin, when he... He be, had a moral 
he had, he a, had moral, a belief in God, too. He had a belief in God. See, he's, he's one of three guys who came up with the first great seal of the United States plan, and he quoted the Bible. He showed the Bible as the great seal. He, he used that the story out of the Bible with Moses and the children in the Red Sea. Then when he, he helped write the 1776 Constitution of Pennsylvania that said you can't hold public office unless you believe God. Oh, really? And, yes, Franklin Ruff. Well, and then you get to 1785, he's the governor of Pennsylvania. He came up with a statewide plan to raise church attendance in Pennsylvania in 1775. Because he saw the benefit. 1785, he saw the benefit. You know this story better than I do, but it was, I think, the Continental Congress that was stalemated, and they couldn't agree on anything. Mm -hmm. And he, he came up and said, if a sparrow cannot yep. fall without the watchful eye of God, how can a nation rise? What, he, what, what had happened was we got the Constitutional Convention. By the way, Franklin has been wanting a nation for a long time. Back in 1770, 1754, he came up with the Albany Plan of Union. And that was the first plan to have a United States. Rather than having 13 individual states, which is like Europe, they were 13 nations. Mm -hmm. Let's have one. Didn't work out. 1776, he signs the Declaration. Now we're starting to be a nation. So we're, 20, we're, we're actually at that point 22 years later. 1783, he's one of three guys to sign the peace treaty to end it. Now we are an independent nation. And then four years later, 1777, he's at the Constitutional Convention trying to create one nation, all 13 states. So it's been, it, for him, it's been 33 years this has been coming. And he's elated. He's an old man. He's 81 years old, by the way. He's 81, and the average lifespan in America back then, according to government records, is 33 years old. Yeah, really so he's young. 81. He's an old man. Uh, his his knees and legs weren't working. They had to use a wheelchair kind of thing to get him in. But he watches for five weeks as the Constitutional Convention falls apart. They argue. They bicker. Nobody agrees with anybody else. Every state has their own agenda. Uh, Alexander Hamilton from New York took the New York delegation. They're leaving. They're going home in disgust. They're tired of fighting. George Mason, Virginia, he's tired of fighting. And so he's watching. On Thursday, June 28, 1787, Franklin gave a speech that was relatively short. It was long for him. In that speech, he cites 14 different Bible verses to show that, guys, we have not been going to God. We've been relying on our own wisdom. Our own wisdom ain't going to get it done. We've got to go to God. And then they had a debate over, wow, should we have a chaplain come in and pray? And, you know, they argued, well, if we do that, people are going to think that we only pray when we get in trouble. That's a bad man. And so, as it turned out, they tabled his motion. But what happened was, in the records of the convention, it shows that they recessed for three days, a cooling off kind of period, let tempers flare, flare out. George Washington said that in that period of time, they went to church to hear patriotic orations. At church, they went to the church, the Reverend William Rogers prayed a special prayer over the Constitutional Convention. I have the actual prayer he prayed. It actually ended up being printed in front pages of newspapers because the country knew the Constitutional Convention was falling apart. They needed to see the prayer that was being prayed. They got back afterwards. Delegates like Jonathan Dayton said the whole atmosphere had changed. Suddenly we were cooperating. Ten weeks later, they come out with the Constitution in which we now still govern ourselves. It was Franklin who chewed the guys out for not praying enough, and he quoted 14 Bible verses to show them they weren't praying enough, and that's our least religious founding That's father. one of the least that's religious. That's the least religious. So even the non-religious were still radically influenced by the morality of the Bible. Franklin did, didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. He, he didn't believe that Jesus was the divine Son of God. But he sure believed in the importance of the Bible and, and scriptures and character. people will focus on him and Jefferson. That's and right. And Jefferson, uh, he started the American Bible Society. No, Jefferson, Jefferson didn't, but he was a lifetime member of the Virginia Bible Society and gave out... Oh, what I was uh -huh. thinking of, he's the one that 
uh, as president, ordered the Bible to be given to all the school children, wasn't he? Well, when he was, when he was president of the United States, he was also on the Washington, D.C. school board. And in that period of time, the Washington, D.C. school board put the Bible in as a primary reading text in the public schools of Washington, D.C. And so that was when Jefferson's on the school board and was president of the United States. And, and so you look at Jefferson, and people say, oh, he did that Jefferson Bible where he cut everything out. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. David, before we get right back into it, let me just mention that when I was with you in May, I believe it was, in the state capitol, you made a statement that 70 to 80-something percent of all Christian youth lose their faith in God after going to college. Yeah, it is, it is not a very good picture right now we have of kids. And somewhere between 71 and 88 percent of kids who are Christians, who are raised in Christian homes, deny their faith in four years of college. Uh, we actually now have two national legal groups who no, do nothing but try to defend kids who are being attacked. Uh, I get reports from kids who said, I went to class my first day. Professor asked us, 300 kids in class, asked us, how many of you are Christians? We raised our hands. He said, you won't be when you leave this class. He announced that right up front. And so we have now two legal groups who try to defend these kids who are getting attacked, but they can't defend all these kids. And as you look right now at the studies on professors, um, just nationally right now, America self-identifies 33% conservative and 17% liberal. Okay, so by two-to-one margin, more than and the rest are in the middle or some some friends. But conservative versus liberal, two-to-one, 33 to 17. University professors only 15% identify as conservative and 72% as liberals. Five to one, the other direction. Well, I've seen that same stat. Like when it comes to the Hollywood, that there's like five percent of Americans claim to be atheists or mm -hmm. something like that. 95 believe in some kind of God, but in Hollywood, it's reversed. It's reversed. 95% are atheist or agnostic. Yep. And stuff. And we we have seen, it, and it was up until probably about eight or nine years ago that media was the most anti-God, anti-biblical group out there. Professors have now passed them. So media is still, and we know how hostile they were, hmm. but professors, and most folks aren't aware that professors have gone past That's them. That's terrible. Now see, the other stat that is so bad is we say, well, I'm not going to send my kid to a secular college. I'll send them to a Christian college. Careful. Stats also show that over 50% of our Christian kids renounce their faith at Christian colleges. How can that be? Because no, these, well, that's that's exactly right. Where did these Christian PhDs get their PhD from? From all these pagan PhDs, and so we're, Jesus tells us in Luke six forty that every teacher, every student, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. So these PhDs in Christian universities often get trained by pagans, and they think just like them. They just happen to be at a Christian university. Yeah. Now I, I know some good Christian profs. I'm not whacking all profs, but I'm telling you, you better be Sorry, careful for your kids. Yep. But, you know, since you said that, I came back, and that really affected me. And I talked to Gary Lukey, the director of our college here, and we just said we've got to do something mm -hmm. about this. And so our, our Bible college here is a two-year college with a third year, and the third year is primarily to train people and get them directly into business and into mm -hmm. things like that. But it's basically a two-year college. But after hearing this stat, we came back and we are beginning to have creationists come in and start teaching on creationism versus evolution and defending the Bible. We've got courses that we've put into place on uh, homosexuality, abortion, That's right. and things like that, making Christian values on these social issues. 
And the reason you're here is because you've been teaching in our Bible school for two days and uh, we've talked to you and you're going to get even more involved next year and help us to put in this godly Christian heritage. So the reason I say all of these things is to say that if a person has children or grandchildren that are going to be going to a secular university because they need to become a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever, you owe it to yourself to send them to a Bible school that would at least yeah. equip them and give them a foundation so that they could deal with this stuff. One of the things that, that I think is really important where the church has fallen down in, in recent years is apologetics. Mm-hmm. We know what we believe. We don't know why we believe right. what we believe. And First Peter 3.15 says we're to be able to give a reason, not an answer, a reason for the hope this way. Are you a Christian? The answer is yes or no. What's the reason? Reason is totally different. And I, I explain this to parents by asking a question. I'll stand in front of the church congregation and say, how many of you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? Everybody raises their hand and say, give me five reasons you believe that. I haven't had an adult give me one reason yet on why. That's a Christian doctrine. They don't know why they believe it. They believe. How many of you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? All the hands go up. Give me five reasons you believe that. They can't give me any reason they believe that. So what happens is these kids go in and, and the professor will say, how many of you are Christians? How many of you believe in virgin birth of Christ? They all raise their hands. They've been taught to do so. He said, have you ever thought about how stupid that is? You can't have a pregnancy and be a virgin. There's no, you've been misled. Your parents and your, your church, they, you're stupid if you, and they go, oh my gosh, this guy's got 14 PhDs. I've never thought about that. You can't be a virgin and have the virgin birth. That, that's a, they don't know how to answer it. And so what happens is they get picked off. And I think what they we also attack from the uh, evolution side. That they is do. such a, a you know established fact by some people's standards. That's that, right, man. If you believe that, it undermines the Bible. You, it's no longer accurate. If you kill Genesis, you kill the Bible. That's right. Genesis is called the seed plot of the Bible. Every major doctrine of Christianity mm-hmm. has its roots in Genesis. You lose Genesis, you lose the Bible. And if you lose the creation evolution debate, you lose your faith. And you know, you referred to Barna survey, and I think this might be some of those pastors that you were part of calling. But out of these pastors who even said that they believed in creationism versus evolution, there was just a very small percentage that said they would stand up and say it. That's right. That's because exactly they, right. Because they don't want they won't persecution say it. that comes That's right. And, and why are we scared to stand up for what the Bible stands up for? I uh, See, that's we've got to be careful that we're not having hirelings instead of pastors because Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hireling flees when trouble comes. You can't turn your back just because things get hard. You've got to stand up and say, oh, is that a bear or a lion? Oh, it's Goliath. My bad. I'll take care of him too. You know, you've got to stand up and take whatever danger comes. And, and we're turning and running from criticism. We're turning and running from a deacon who gets mad at us for having talked about something. We're turning and running from two phone calls we got. People complain. You can't do that. It doesn't even have to be that. If somebody just rolls their eyes at you. Exactly like, right. That's enough to make most people back down. I'll tell you, God got me early on because what I, what I talk about is hated by a whole lot of people. I get viciously attacked. Um, there, there are groups that are paid they will watch every program we've done. They will have blogs on what we talked about. They are paid to watch me and trash me. And so that happens. But before I knew any of this, how I was just a cowboy from, from Lido, Texas. Okay? I, I didn't know there was mean people in the world. You know? I, mean, I just didn't know that. I didn't know they were organized at all. And God gave me Jeremiah 117. And he told Jeremiah, he said, if you look at their faces, mm-hmm. and if that changes... The message I gave you, I will break you to pieces from. Got it. I won't compromise based on what pe- how people react. Mm-hmm. Well, little did I know, 
that I didn't even know what God meant when people react. You know, I, I had a U.S. News World Report guy ask me one time, he said, did you know the ACLU just spent a million dollars to discredit you? No, but that's a million dollars they can't spend attacking a school district, and that's great. You know, so, but there's a lot of there's a lot of money spent. But I've been told by God that if the way they react changes my message, then He's going to break me, and, and I believe that. And, and He needs people that are not going to back down. And I will tell you, some of the most vicious criticism I get is from Christians. But they were the Christians trained by the pagans, yep. the Christian university guys who were trained by the pagan university guys. And so the guys in Christians' clothing are oftentimes, and that's the way it was in revival. George Whitfield, George Whitfield didn't get beat up by the secular guys. He got beat up by the Christian guys. Charles Finney, Second Great Awakening. It wasn't the secular guys that made fun of him. It was the Christian guys. Every revival that comes along, it's not the secular guys that go after you, it's the Christian guys. That go. One, of the, one of the axioms I learned long ago, because I was in political office for nine years in Texas, partisan office, and then uh, I've been an um, ordained minister, been involved in church ministry and church staff for long, and I came up with the same axiom for both of them. And it is, I don't need enemies, I got friends. You know, and they, they do worse than you. I've learned to wear a bulletproof vest, but it's always to the back because it's a friendly fire that gets you. We've never learned to play together in the same sandbox. That's what Nehemiah was able to get people to do. They all joined together in rebuilding the, 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 the nation. And you just take care of your part. You don't criticize other people. There, but you take care of your part. And if you'll stand up and show backbone and do what you're supposed to do and everybody else does what they're supposed to do, we're in good shape. So, David, I'm sure that there's Christians who really love God mm-hmm. and are committed to God, but they have drunk the Kool-Aid. They right. have either not been taught the things that you're saying or they've actually been taught against it, mm-hmm. and they are just highly offended, and yet they love God. How do you reconcile these things? What, what do they do? There's a couple of things that, that I think are really, really significant. Um, Paul is the most credentialed apostle of all the early church. No question. He studied at Gamal. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was everything. He had every, every PhD that you could get in his day, he had. And in Acts 17, and he loved the Thessalonians. He wrote two letters to them, two, two letters in the Bible or to the Thessalonian church. He loved them. But he said, I like the Bereans even more than I like the Thessalonians because they refused to believe me. These guys don't believe. He said, they search the scriptures every day to see if I'm telling them the truth. And that was the, the deal. Is don't believe me. Don't believe the credentials. Go see. Check it out. I have, uh, I have a whole folder full of testimonies like this. But one is a, a guy who was an ACLU member. He was an attorney. And he got really ticked off at me. He said, you're lying about all this stuff. Now, is he a Christian too? Oh, no. So not he a was not a Christian. Not a Christian. And he says, you're lying about all this. And he went back and he said, I'm going to prove you wrong. So he took my book, Original Tent. Started going through it, checked all the footnotes. Um, got a letter from him some years later. He said, as it turned out, you understated it. There was a whole lot more back there than what you said there was. As a result, he became a Christian. He's now a judge on a court of appeals. Praise and the God. reason he did so was he didn't believe me. He went to check the documents mm-hmm. out. What happens is if people don't go to check the documents themselves and just believe what they read on the web or on a blog or in the newspaper or what MSNBC says about me or something else, they'll never look. If they'll go look at the document, you know, we've talked about this last two weeks. That's the first ever printing in America of the Pilgrim's Records. It's online. Go read it. Don't believe me about Thanksgiving. Go check it out for yourself. Check the letter of Edward Winslow back to to London back in 1622 or 23, where he described being there at the first Thanksgiving. He was there. He's the eyewitness. Read that. 
See, and that's what people need to get in the habit of. Is it doesn't matter how many PhDs you got after your name. It doesn't matter how credentialed you are. It doesn't matter if you're the Apostle Paul. I don't believe you until I go check it out for myself. And so if you do that, it's many it of your difference. critics would sit there and say, "This is illogical. You're just taking things on faith. You aren't thinking it through." So uh, they're the ones that are actually illogical if they don't go and you check know, up on all of the stuff that you're saying. If they really want to believe that mm -hmm. they're logic and they're they're the ones that are open-minded, then go look at the documentation for what you're saying. One of the things, they won't say that it's illogical. They say that you're wrong because Professor so-and-so says, what well, if they don't quote the documents, they quote each other. And so they're in this incestuous little pool of, of, of collectivism where they quote each other. And a great example of that is that when we did the book Original Intent, we have about 14... 180 or 1500 footnotes or something in that book and they go back to original sources and it's the founding fathers their view of religion faith christianity and there's more than two founding fathers by the way people think that jefferson and franklin are only founding there's 250 founding fathers so about you know you, you get the two 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 guys that weren't christians and they say nobody else was either no 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 sorry i'll take you the opposite way and i often tell guys i said every one non-christian founding father you name i'll name five Let's see who runs out first. Well, they always run out first, and I can give them more names than they even know about that are not Christian. But th that's the problem. We, we, we have it twisted the wrong way. So I, I did this book and said, look, America, uh, Christian roots. As a matter of fact, the courts of the United States on 300 occasions have issued rulings saying that America is a Christian nation. And so they come and say... That'll come as a total shock to a lot of people. Oh, days. it's in court records. Don't, don't believe me because I've got it in the book. You can check all the court cases involved. So how can they rule it's a Christian nation and then rule anti-Christian? Because, they, see, and this is, this is what they do. They, they, in, in the case of Christian nation, they said, Barton's line is not a Christian nation. Professor so-and-so said it's not a Christian nation. I gave you 300 court cases. You gave me the opinion of a professor over at some university. And that's what they do. And so what they do is they beat you up by quoting all the authorities who know. And so with me saying America has Christian foundations, there was a book that came out called In Search of Christian America done by three Christian PhDs. And they said, no, 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 no way. No. And so people said, how do you get an opposite conclusion from these guys? They're looking at American founding. And American founding is considered from 1760 to 1805. That's the founding era. They look at the founding era and say, no Christian. You look at the founding era and say, Christian, how do they do that? And I said, that's a good question. So I took their book. I went to the back of the book. I looked at the bibliography in the back. And they cited hundreds of sources. And that was, that's good. I mean, you want sources. And then I plotted their sources. About 90% of the sources they cited were printed after 1960. So when you're looking at 1760 by reading books printed in 1960, we've got a problem here. I went to ours, and I think 87% or something like that of our sources were actually from when the founding fathers were alive. They were their own writings. From, and, and so I look at the actual documents of the founding fathers and conclude, yep, Christian. They look at all the opinions of the professors in the 1960s and say, nope, not Christian. And that's where the difference comes. Yeah, when I interviewed you before, I can't remember the details, but you wrote about one book who had, I think, gone back to Lincoln, or it might have been, anyway, as one of the early presidents, and just trashed them mm -hmm. and stuff. And uh, they didn't have hardly any bibliography, but they were proven to be wrong in these things. But nonetheless, that became like the textbook that everybody else yeah. started there, there's one called the Godless Constitution, and it's done by a couple of professors at Cornell. And they say, look, the Founding Fathers wanted a secular nation. They deliberately created a secular government. There was, some of them may have been religious, but a secular nation was their intent. 
And you get to the back of the book, and it says we have dispensed the usual scholarly apparatus of footnotes. Not a single footnote in the entire book. Now, I can give you thousands of footnotes, mm -hmm. but they say, look, we're PhDs. Trust us. We're telling you they wanted a secular government. Well, and just so because you want one. That's right. Without that's any right. bibliography. Without, and there's not, and they, would, they would not allow a single student in their class to turn in a research paper without a footnote to it. And yet they write an entire book. Without, and now courts quote that book as the authority on why we should have secular government because our professors say that this is a godless constitution. You know, I often make this statement to people when I teach them what the Word says and they say, well, that's not what... And I, I say, well, most people don't let the Bible get in the way of what they yeah, believe. That's right. That's well, right. Most, most liberals don't let the Constitution and, and truth get in the way of what they believe. That's exactly right. They just choose. You have to have a prejudice already. They have already in their heart rejected God, I believe, for personal reasons, and so they want to adopt this. They want to believe that there is no God because that way they can act like an animal That's and right. aren't accountable. They make God in their own image. They make government in their own image. They make the Constitution in their own image. The good thing about Jesus was in Matthew 4, when he got challenged in so many areas, he kept saying, the Scripture says, the script, it is written, it is written, God says. And that's because he knew the Word of God problem with Christians today is they hear stuff out there and they don't know what God says. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the things I'll just point to real quickly is, hey, we as Christians need to be taking care of the poor. The government needs to do more to take care of the poor. Alright, here's the deal. The Bible gives you 205 verses on taking care of the poor. Bibles on taking care of the poor. If I take those 205 verses and take the ones that are directed at church, at family, and at government, the only thing the government's told to do with the poor is to make sure that when they come into court they get justice. All the things on providing for the poor is told either to the individual or to the church. Nowhere does the Bible say, but people are told, oh, 205 verses in the Bible on taking care of the poor. The government should be doing more with social programs. No, that's not. But if you don't know the Bible, you'll twist that into your own beliefs. Yeah. I mentioned this earlier about a group of pastors who were debating uh, education and one said we shouldn't even have secular That's right. education. Well, it's the same thing. The government should not be doing welfare. The church is responsible for that. And if we would do it according to the word where if you don't work, you don't eat and all of these other things, it would be totally different. You wouldn't have the second, third generation. Let, let me throw out one of the things that's happening is our schools are not teaching good history anymore. Parents can do that, but parents are going to have to learn it themselves. So you've got to turn off the TV occasionally. You're going to have to go get a book. You're going to have to read a little bit of history and teach it to your kids. But I, I'll tell you one of the things. Choose this right here. That's the first textbook ever printed in the United States, 1690, Boston. From 1690 to 1930, if you went to school in America, you learned to read out of this book right here. So that, that little textbook right there. This is a 1777 edition of it. We reprinted this. This is uh, John Hancock in the front because he was the hero in 1777. And so here's your reading text for 240 years. There's John Hancock. So... Here's first grade questions, 168 first grade questions at the back of this book. Here's your first grade questions. What is the fifth commandment? What's required in the fifth commandment? What's forbidden in the fifth commandment? What's the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? Let me back up to some other first grade questions. Uh, first grade question, how does Christ execute the office of our Redeemer? How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? How does Christ execute the office of a priest? How does Christ execute the office of a king? Another first grade question here. Uh, question number 36. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? Wow. Public school. First grade. 200. So we just reprint a bunch of old public school textbooks. Just get some of these. Just 
So uh, if the people have been motivated by what you say and they say, all right, how do I relearn this stuff? How do I teach it to my kids? Uh, tell them about some stuff that's on your website. Our, our website's got a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of good publishing companies out there. That have some, we have something called Drive Through History. It's designed really for about junior high to show them God's hand in history. We show them heroes of history that they learn about in school, but they never learn they were godly. We have books like this. We have a reading list. There's great authors across the United States that deal with this stuff. People just don't hear about them because they don't get coverage in the news. So we, we have a lot of resources. I mean, we got stuff, but there's other people who have lots of great stuff, and we like to promote others as well. But and so go to our website. If they went to your website, website, do you have links to other We places? do. Go to website at wallbuilders.com. Check the helpful links. Check the recommended reading list or check our store, and we got all sorts of old books in our store that we reprint. That's awesome. David, I want to thank you for what you're doing, not only being with us, but just what you're doing to help educate people and stand up against this. When we change what people know, we'll change what they expect. When we change what they expect, we'll change our policies, and that will get us back in a godly direction. And I appreciate your attitude, too, because I got some criticism by having you on my program before, which didn't bother me. But, I mean, you have had a lot of criticism, and yet you got a great attitude. That's well, awesome. I'm nowhere near perfect, and Jesus got killed for being perfect. So I can handle criticism because he, he's set the example. We don't, we don't care but what people say. I appreciate you, and I know that there's lots of people who appreciate you standing up and feel like we've got people out there fighting for the right things. My pleasure. Happy so to stand. thank you very much. Thanks, brother.